0: The Haunted Rock, by W. W. Fenn. Horthgeren is in Cornwall. If you do not know the place, it must be because, in your exploration of the 101 similar villages abounding on that romantic coast, you have overlooked the one, and that one must be Horthgarin. Like many of its fellows, it is situated in a little ravine in the dark serpentine rock running down to the sea from the higher land of gorse and heather-clad moor. Most of the thatched and occasionally slate-roofed cottages, with their irregular patches of garden, nestle right and left among the ferny, craggy banks of the steep, winding way by courtesy called a street, by which the traveler reaches the beach." Some few other dwellings, looking from the sea like huge white-winged gulls, are to be seen perched here and there upon apparently inaccessible ledges of cliff, whence they command many a fine peep across the wide, wide world. The square-towered tiny church, on the verge of a few green pastures and cornfields, stands at the head of the village, and the watermill, worked by a miniature mountain torrent, stands at the bottom. Only a little below this, begins a conglomeration of capstans, beach houses, boats and boat sheds, anchors, spars, chains, and the rest of the rumble tumble of the fishing trade, which holds high charge on the shore. Here the coast, broadening out with a curve on either hand, forms a secluded cove between two arms of frowning precipitous cliff, which seems stretching forth to embrace this lapful of deep green-blue sea. The rugged and lofty formation of the land almost hides the existence of the little industrial hive until you come close upon it and, so far as its importance in the world is concerned, you may be excused for overlooking it altogether, as you probably have done. But if so, you have missed a very beautiful and romantic picture and will scarcely have realized to its full extent the superstitious side of the Cornish mind For there is attached to this place a legend in which many of the inhabitants believe with an almost religious intensity. It was told to me some years ago by a brave and intelligent old salt, one Jacob Seller by name, a native of the village, whose implicit credence of the story supplied a strong example of the characteristics of his race. I was returning from America in one of the Conard boats. Seller was a seaman on board, and spun for me many a yarn, ghostly and otherwise. I had lately witnessed some unaccountable spiritual manifestations in the States, and my natural skepticism on the question had, I confess, been considerably shaken. My mind was full of the subject, so that I listened with more interest than I might otherwise have done to this particular story, which greatly impressed me not only from the man's manner of telling it, but from its weird nature, and I never forgot it. Thus, when fate took me to the western crags of England in the autumn of 1877, and I came plump upon the nestling village of Porthgaren, as most people do, before being aware of it, I recognized on the instant the feature in the landscape which marked it as the background to the legend I had heard from the lips of old Jacob. This was a tall, isolated mass of almost inaccessible rock standing about 200 yards away from the western headland of the cove. I call it isolated because it nearly always is so for, except about an hour at the lowest of spring tides in very calm weather, it is entirely cut off from the mainland. But on these occasions, a narrow ridge of soft, sandy shingle is left bare looking as if it would form an easy path to the rude promontory. Yet, a little closer inspection soon shows this idea to be fallacious. Inasmuch as, except by a boat, you cannot even reach the main shore end of the little causeway, jutting out as it does from the base of the sheer down cliff. Hence, the leopard's head, as the crag is named, is never scaled, being inaccessible except at the one spot where its rocky spurs lose themselves in the sand of the narrow connecting ridge. Thus, it is left to the undisputed possession of the myriad seabirds that make it their home. The fishing boats on their way to and from their anchorage in the cove always keep outside the leopard's head and are never tempted to make a shortcut westward by passing between it and the mainland. However high the tide or calm the sea, they avoid this narrow channel, with its treacherous, never-absent groundswell, for, apart from its natural dangers, the superstition runs to the effect that a malignant demon stretches a huge, iron net across the opening. Invisible to him until his craft is entangled within its fatal meshes, the mariner who from ignorance, or hardihood, should attempt the passage will, it is declared, struggle in vain to extricate himself, and must inevitably founder. So ran the legend, as told to me by the old salt aforesaid. Did he believe it? I asked him. Yes, indeed he did, he said. He had good reason. He had seen the net once himself when a lad, and it was a terrible and strange business. "'It was the end of September 1847, and a boat, during a heavy squall from the westward, was trying to make the cove by the shortcut, and, surely, just as she got betwixt the leopard and the mainland, in the leopard's grip, as the channel is called, she seemed to kind of stick fast, although she had been running quite free the moment before.' There was plenty of water, and she couldn't hardly have struck on the bar or little beachway. But, howsomever, whether she did or not, she couldn't get through. The heavy seas broke over her, of course, directly she was brought to, pooped her, in fact, and down she went with all hands two men and a boy. The boy was my brother Isaac, continued Jacob Seller, looking grave when telling me the tale. But he was saved, that is, he was picked up in the cove senseless, but they managed to restore him to life. The other two was never found even. There's a many curious things connected with that calamity, sir, I can tell you, he added, one of which is that, it being pretty nigh dark at the time, nobody couldn't exactly make out what did happen except that we all saw, as we stood on the beach, the net suddenly stretched across the channel and could see that it was that as the craft got tangled in, as it brought her up and turned her broadside on the seas. The water was breaming at the time, you know, and this made the net plain to us, for it seemed to come up out of the sea just in front of the boat and was sparkling, all over its meshes, just like silver, with the phosphorescent light. And you saw this? I asked. That I did, sir, with these very eyes. And the boy, your brother, when he came to his senses, what had he to say about it? Ah, that's where 'tis, you see, sir. Poor chap, he never did rightly come to his senses. It gave him such a scare as he never got over. He's been kind of cracky-like ever since. He's a bit younger than I am, though elderly, you know, by this time, but he never quite got his wits back. He is harmless, don't you know, but dazed and silly, especially at times. And he could never give any account of how the accident happened, how it was the boat came to grief in the leopard's grip? No, sir, he wa'n't never able to tell nothing at all about it. Never a word. Well, I remarked, and after a pause, it was true the poor fellows lost their lives anyhow, whether the devil caught them in his net or not. Yes, sir, but another curious thing is these two men. I remember them well. Tom Fenthal and Raymond Sass were partners in the boat, and said to be great friends, and staunch to one another. But, They were both in love with the same girl, Alice Dornell, And it was said there had been words about her between them more than once, and especially just before they got lost. Another curious thing yet, went on old Jacob presently, is that some of the people looking on declared that, as well as seeing the net as I have just told you, when the boat foundered, they saw one of the men get ashore on the lower rocks of the leopard's head, and that he was seen standing there and waving his arms till night quite hid him. But could not they get him off? No, no boat durst go near that place in such a sea. And next morning, the next morning, he was gone, been carried away again, if so be as he had ever been there at all, though I make no doubt he had. And the girl, what became of her? "'Ah, that's the most curiousest part of all,' said the seaman, "'growing graver and graver and slower and slower in his utterances. "'More curious than anything I've told you yet, sir. "'And this I've seen myself, too, many times before I came away to sea. "'Poor Alice Dornell took on terribly when she knew her lover was drowned.' For she gave the preference, it was said, to Raymond Sass. Howsomever, a couple of years afterwards, she died, in a kind of decline-like, and she's the Phantom of porth Cove. What haunts the place, I suppose, I said, smiling. Yes, but you needn't laugh, sir. This is a fact. I tell you I've seen her more than a score of times, And I do hear she may be seen even now, especially in September, about the anniversary, as you may say. Well, what does one see? What did you see? Why, I've seen her standing in the dusk on the rocks of the leopard, all lighted up by the phosphorus, just as if she had come out of the sea as we saw the net that night. Well, I've seen her just so, I remember her by sight. When she was alive quite well, and I've seen her looking just as she did then, only all lighted up, as I say. Lots of the Porthgaran folk have seen her, and they'll tell you so if you ever go there. My poor brother can always see her. He has a kind of gift that way. Like enough, you'd see her yourself. And what does she do? Oh, do... Why, she seems to come out of the sea, as I tell you, and stand on the rocks, and then she'll go up higher and higher, not seeming to clamber, but as if she was going up and up as a spirit would, don't you know, floating like, rising, rising till she reaches the flattish top of the leopard's head, and there she'll stay for hours, passing to and fro, brimming with the light all the time. Why then, she makes a sort of lighthouse, I said, still smiling. A very useful phantom, truly. Tain't no good for you to laugh, sir, continued Jacob, yet more seriously, evidently not relishing my skepticism. I tell you, I've seen her over and over again, as you may if you ever goes to Porthgarin. And now I was at Porthquarin, and now, as I have said, the old salt story came back to my mind with the renewal of the interest it had originally created. The vexed question of how far we are permitted to have contact with the vast unseen has never ceased to interest me since my visit to the States, but a subsequent deep immersion in the stern realities of life had left me no opportunities for pursuing the subject. Here, however was one at hand unexpectedly put before me, and although I had attributed Jacob Seller's strong belief to the natural superstition of the Cornish people, there was, nevertheless, an earnestness in his manner, and an intelligence peeping out beneath his uncultured speech, which forbade one to disregard it, and since, for the present, I was a wanderer in my time all my own, some of it, I determined, should be spent upon the scene of the mystery." I have given but the barest outline of my talk with Seller. It was resumed over and over again, and it elicited so many circumstantial details that, if they were not the result of a too-fervid imagination, the Phantom of Porth Cove was a manifestation equal to anything I had ever heard of and well worth investigating. Snug quarters at the little inn were readily obtained. And in the course of two or three days, I had scraped acquaintance with many of the hardy, honest, kindly natives, including Jacob's brother, old Isaac Seller, the poor chap who had been kind of cracky-like ever since that fatal time when he nearly lost his life in the leopard's grip. He was quite a feature of the place, much respected by his fellow villagers, and not at all incapable of work but I was told he had periodical fits of abstraction and wandering, which seemed to lift him quite above the world and give him a dazed and incoherent manner. Otherwise, he was a strong, fine-looking man with a long gray beard and with quite the air of a prophet and seer, as he professed himself to be. He was also a preacher at times when the spirit moved him and though undoubtedly kind of cracky, he was by no means bereft of intelligence. All the Fisher folk were ready to talk about the phantom, and to believe in it, but I found very few after all, besides poor crazy Isaac, who admitted having seen it. In his garrulous, half-witted way, however, he was very strong on the point, throwing into it a sort of religious fervor, and they said it was the only one on which he was thoroughly sane. He confirmed many of the details given me by his brother. To wit, the spirit of Alice Dornell was only to be seen by ordinary folk in the gloaming, and then only under conditions of tide and weather similar to those which had prevailed when her lover lost his life, now 30 years ago. About the anniversary, too, she was more frequently visible than at any other time. But he, Isaac Seller, could see her almost whenever he liked, he said, because he had faith and could see farther into things than most folk. He had been a dreamer and a seer all his life, he avowed. He saw many strange things of which other people had no idea, but sometimes when they would believe him, he could make them see strange things too. In fact, from his own account of himself, Isaac Seller would have been considered a first-rate medium in America. He seemed endowed with all the qualifications. In answer to my inquiry, if he thought he could make me see Alice Dornell, he said he thought he could. I doubt not, but ye will see her yourself, he added, after looking at me in an odd, vacant yet penetrating manner. Ye have the eye of belief, the face of a believer. It all depends on faith, as the scripture tells us. faith. "'in something just beyond what we can touch and lay hold of. "'If you'll walk in the right way, sir, "'you'll have the gift vouchsafed ye.' After a pause, during which he removed his eyes from mine and seemed to gaze into space, he continued fervently, "'Ah, sweet Alice! "'I knew her when I was a child!' "'She loved the lad Raymond truly. "'I knew that all along he had no need to have told me, "'and now she never leaves him, never strays far from him, "'as in life, so in death. "'You mean,' I said, "'that her spirit never strays far from the place where he is drowned?' "'That is my meaning,' answered Isaac. She dwells with the seabirds among the rocks of the leopard's head, and sometimes, with them, dives deep beneath the treacherous waters which encircle it, dives deep, I believe, to where he lies many a fathom down. Then, when she comes up, she breams with light and waves her arms, often beckoning and pointing, and in the dusk or by night, She will be visible even to some of those without faith. Even the fool who hath said in his heart, There is no God, may see her then, but I. I can see her in all lights, at all times, as plainly as the birds with whom she skims and flies round the head. Sometimes, too, I hear her voice mingling with their notes, faint But clear it comes to me. A painful, wailing cry that the unbeliever will tell you is not that but of the kittiwake and seagulls. But I know the difference, though she speaks no word. Surely tomorrow will be, of all days, the day to look for her presence." 30 years will then have come and gone to the very hour at nightfall when raymond died early and late she will be there and as the dawn creeps into the air ye shall see her if you'll come and bide by me you will think me as crazy as poor isaac himself when i say that i listened with deep interest to these half mystic half prophetic but most earnestly delivered utterances. But we all have a crazy side to our characters, politely called a weakness, and I am bound to repeat that what I have seen in the States had vastly developed this, my weakness, and had left the truth of spiritualism quite a moot point in my mind. To me, there was as much reason in this man's pretensions to hold commune with the spirits of the departed as any of the mediums with whom I had come in contact, albeit he knew little of the ways in which such powers were used. Why then, should I not place myself in his mediumistic hands and see if he could put me in rapport with his troubled spirit from the vastly deep after the manner of some of my late American experiences? I determined to do so, and it was arranged that I should meet him in the following morning between five and six, On that part of the shore commanding the nearest view of the haunted rock. Verily, a wild goose chase it might have appeared even to the fisher folk of Porthgaren, had they known our purpose when the few early movers among them saw us meet at the foot of the village and stroll away along the lonely shore in the semi-darkness of that chill, gray, misty morning. A perfect calm prevailed, but heavy banks of dense sea fog hung about the headlands, now shrouding and now slightly revealing their gloomy masses. At first, the leopards stood out gaunt and huge against the gray surroundings, but as we approached it became more and more obscure. The tardy dawn just gave enough light to indicate our whereabouts, lending a most weird aspect to the scene. When we had gone about half a mile around the western arm of the bay, Isaac, who kept in advance of me and scarcely ever spoke suddenly stopped and stretching back a hand whispered hold on sir i saw her but now take my hand and turn your eyes due west see where she hovers with the seabirds round the leopard's base i gazed eagerly in the direction indicated and faintly beheld a form, which for one moment certainly did look like that of a woman clothed in silver light, rising out of the sea, but in another like nothing but that of a fantastic wreath of mist. It was gone as rapidly as it appeared, as rapidly as though it had been but the flashing whiteness from the outstretched pinions of the birds that by myriads soared and swooped through the heavy folds of the fog, Gone, as though it had been but a passing fancy, an ocular illusion, momentary, vague, and unsubstantial as the misty air itself. Ye saw her, sir, I doubt not, then went on my guide. Silence, patience, and faith, and ye shall see her again. We had reached the utmost limits of the shingly shore, where the frowning cliffs at the western horn of the cove stretched precipitously into the sea and stopped farther progress. Fifty yards beyond this barrier began the sandy causeway connecting the mainland with the leopard. But had the tide been out even when we could not have seen it from our position, and the leopard, when the fog lifted a little, lay before us completely isolated. Nothing in nature could well have looked more weird and ghostly than did the scene or more in harmony with our purpose. The day was breaking languidly, and still shedding but the faintest, palest light, whilst the restless fog banks swirling to and fro might have been likened to giant specters as they swept across the oily ocean or clung to the towering cliffs in strange, fantastic forms. An intense chill was in the air, which was greatly increased when, every now and then, the gray mist enveloped us in its ghostly folds, shutting out everything beyond an arm's length and seeming to cut us off from the world of fact and light. During one of the densest of these visitations, I felt the rough, broad palm of Isaac close tightly on mine and through a gap which suddenly appeared in the obscurity surrounding us, I once more saw the female form in strong relief against the dark crags of the leopard. Now, there was no mistake about it. Bathed in the same translucent light, there it plainly was, floating in midair, as one has seen angels represented in pictures, and slowly waving one arm, half beckoning and pointing upwards. Say it was some 300 yards distant across the water. Say that it was still vague and vapor-like, semi-transparent in parts as the fog itself. Say that I was out of my mind, or or in a dream, or unduly acted on by those transatlantic experiences and the imaginings arising therefrom, which old Isaac had rekindled. Say all this, if you please. But I say distinctly that with these eyes I saw a woman's form, palpable, unmistakable, floating upwards across the face of the cliff, pointing and beckoning. The features at such a distance, of course, could not be discerned. Nor do I say that I could see any details. All was merged into the unsubstantial substance, if I may use the paradox, of silvery light. But the form and action were distinct. For two minutes or more, it may have been, The vision was so far clearly before me, nor did it dissolve into the mist of which, I admit it seemed composed, until the figure reached, in its slow ascent, the topmost verge of the isolated crag. Then the fog again shut it all out, and for a while held us in its weird gloom. But soon after this it lifted. A soft breeze sprang up, and the cheering rays of the morning sun restored us to warmth and reality. Beyond a momentary look of triumph with shot from old Isaac's lackluster eyes as he turned them on me, little or nothing passed between us as we retraced our steps, and I had full time to cogitate over this strange experience. At length I said, as we got back among the boats, How long is it since the leopard was explored? Isaac shook his head as he answered. It never was explored. No one can land there. No one ever goes nearer to it than we have been. If they did the iron net, which the evil spirit of the place stretches across the channel, and which cost Raymond his life, and made my wits to wander, would wind itself round and strangle the life out of those who should dare to brave the dangers of the crag. But I am told, said I, one could manage to land there when the sand is exposed at very low tide. Aye, but you would not bide there long. The net would be shot over you as surely as fate. There are spring tides now, I think, I went on. When will the sand be clearest? At this evening's ebb. It was nearly clear this morning when we first went there. This evening the tide will run out farther and be dead low water somewhere nigh to five o'clock. Then, said I, decidedly, if the sea holds smooth, I'll land there myself and have a closer look at the place where this troubled spirit wanders. This determination was the result of my cogitation, for, notwithstanding what I had seen, I had no dread of nor belief in the existence of this direful net. That part of the story was, doubtless, founded on some antique myth, as old as the crag itself. If I understood spiritual manifestations aright, they always pointed to a purpose, And it is nothing but man's own willful blindness and skepticism which hides from him their end and aim, and leads him in his arrogance to ask, What is their use? What good ever comes from these departed souls revisiting the glimpses of the moon? And, by sights, signs, or sounds, holding converse with us of the visible world. Isaac's face was something to see, as I announced my resolve, and... In spite of all persuasion and argument, he entirely refused to accompany me on the expedition. He declared his conviction that I should never return alive, and that I should find no one in Porthgaren who would go with me, adding, I doubt whether they'll even lend ye a boat if they know you're bent. I was so determined, however, that by an hour before low water that evening, I had hired the lightest rowboat in the place and, keeping my object to myself, was afloat in the bay under pretext of simple amusement. Old Isaac reluctantly promised to say nothing of my intention, and, though doing all he could to dissuade me, helped me to push the boat off from the beach. As I pulled out, I saw his tall, gaunt figure passing along the shore towards the point we had occupied in the morning. It was a lovely, soft, windless autumn evening as the sun sank towards the west, and, keeping my eye upon the tide, I had lazily pulled to within twenty boats' length of the sandy ridge when the thin line of rippling breakers marking its position faded away and left it bare. Then I gave way lustily, and in a few minutes the boat's nose ran softly up to the sand just below the spur of the fatal crag. Springing ashore, I made her fast by the grapnel I had ready in her bows. An athlete and a fairish cragsman, I soon managed to scale the lower declivities, and before long I had clambered well nigh to the top of the leopard's head. I will not stop to describe the wild beauty of the scene stretching around me, nor do more than hint at the strange undercurrent of feeling which had prompted me to make this exploration. But a conviction had taken root in my mind that I might by it gain some clue to the purpose of the manifestation I had witnessed, a conviction, as I have said, that there had been an object in it, and that I might trace this object out. Thus, I began examining and surveying every rift and fissure, cleft and ledge of this wild storm-beaten islet. This hitherto undisputed home of the seabirds, which, astounded by my audacity, at first seemed so reluctant to move that I might almost have captured many with my hands. But at length, the whole colony was on the wing, swirling, swooping, hovering, until the air was darkened with them as by a cloud, and their shrill, piping, and discordant notes nearly deafened me. Half an hour passed, and by the time I had wandered wherever foothold was possible, all over and around the top of the plateau, twilight, was setting in. I was descending by the way I had come and had got a short distance down when, upon a rocky shelf just below a strangely beetling crag, my eye fell upon an object which startled me and instantly riveted my attention. Getting close to the edge of the overhanging rock, the better to look down upon this discovery. I all but lost my footing through the shock which the spectacle then gave me. For there, partially coiled under shelter of the projecting cliff, lay a human skeleton, bleached and moldering, with the face of the skull turned upwards to the sky, the hollow sockets of the eyes seeming to meet mine with a horrible, imploring expression. When the amazement caused by this ghastly sight a little subsided, I began to realize the fact that in it Perhaps lay the very clue I was looking for. How had the unhappy being whose remains lay thus exposed before me come there? Instantly I thought of Raymond Sass and the account Jacob Seller had given me of either he or his companion being seen clinging to the rocks when their boat foundered in the leopard's grip, just thirty years ago, this very night. If these bleaching bones were indeed those of the hapless fisherman and it seemed the very likely solution, had I not discovered the purpose for which the restless spirit of Alice Dornell had ever since haunted this wild and supposedly inaccessible rock? Well, not to prolong my tale, I got back to my boat, and as soon as it touched the shore of the cove, without waiting to answer the questions with which I was assailed, I hastened straight away to the vicarage. And communicated my discovery to the incumbent of the square-towered tiny church at the head of the village. He was a pompous, unsociable man whom I had rather avoided, and, although at first he seemed to entirely discredit my statement, for, unwisely, I told him how I had been led to visit the leopard, I convinced him of its truth. In the end, he took such steps as led to the interment in the churchyard by the grave of Alice Dornell, of the remains of poor Raymond Sass. That they were his, there could be no doubt, inasmuch as, lying with them besides the remains of some other slowly perishable trifles, such as a tobacco box, knife, etc., there was found a little trinket in the shape of a heart. On it was engraved his name and that of Alice, the donor, and he had evidently worn it round his neck by the little chain to which it was attached. One word more about Isaac Seller and my fisher friends. Although I had, for a few of them, dispelled the fable of the iron net and had shown that access to the rock was easy and without danger, he entirely refused to make one of the small party who were at length persuaded to accompany me on a second visit To assist in the removal of all that was left of their lost comrade. And as to the Phantom? Well, it has never appeared again. Even Isaac Seller, whom I had a talk with only last autumn, has never seen it, though three years have passed since I cleared up the mystery by restoring to rest and peace the erewhile troubled spirit of Alice Dornell, For that I did this by procuring for her lover Christian burial, I have no manner of doubt. My experiences at Porthgaran have finally determined my wavering belief in the truth of spiritual manifestations. I can no longer doubt that they have their object, and that they have a real existence for those whose minds are rightly attuned, and who can, as Isaac put it, have Faith in something just beyond what ye can touch and lay hold of.